Hey, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Fearless Paranoia. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity lawyer. And I'm Ryan. I'm a cybersecurity architect. And we are going to do our very best to help to demystify the incredibly dense and acronym-filled world of cybersecurity. And today we jump right into one of those. One of the probably most common acronyms that I've heard in my entire practice of technology and cybersecurity has been DDoS. It's something that for the longest time I never even heard explained or defined. But if you pay any attention at all to the way cyber criminals operate these days, you will run into this term. Uh, If you deal with IoT, the Internet of Things, local devices, router safety, you will run into this term. If you read about the war between Russia and Ukraine and the nation state sponsored hacking and the hacktivism going on there, you will run into this term. DDoS. Ryan, what are we talking about? What is DDoS? Well, let's start by stripping off the first D to get to the really the the source of what this is. <laughs> so now we're down to DOS and on You know, for the old nerds like me, we're not talking about the old disk operating system from back in the days that we all loved in command line where we played Oregon Trail and all that old stuff. No, we're talking about DOS. We're talking about denial of service. And so denial of service at its core is exactly what it says. Uh, It is somebody employing methods to deny access to a service that is being offered. And so at its core, denial of service is implementing a strategy to deny that service or deny access there. Distributed denial of service is what DD. OSs. And that's when we take the concept of denial of service and we start adding things like the internet into it. So to start at its core, a quick example of denial of service would be, let's say I want to deny somebody access to a website. So the easiest way to do that is to overload that website with requests to the point where it can no longer take additional incoming requests because it has been basically tapped out with the amount of requests that you're throwing at it. And therefore, anyone else that tries to get to the service is unable to. The service is effectively offline because it is swarmed with a huge amount of requests for access or requests for availability of that service. So let's talk about that for a second. When you talk about a website, and we wouldn't necessarily think about it because I think a lot of people, a lot of people might look at a website and think of it as static, but it is a service. It is something that requires operation. It's more than just, you know, power to the server that you access to. It requires another server to send information back to your computer. So there's a service being provided. When you talk about requests and being overloaded by requests, give us an idea of what you mean and give us an example of how this works in a website system. Sure. I'll keep this a little high level, but I'm going to jump down a small rabbit hole with you on this one. So there's a couple different things that happen when you make a request to go to a website. So let's just take something as simple as like Amazon.com. You try to go to www.amazon.com, you punch that into your web browser, and the next thing you know, bam, a whole bunch of pictures, data, text, everything pops up on your screen. You've got shopping carts, you've got different images to click on, you've got advertisements, search bars, a whole variety of different things. Plus, you have an account that you can log into, which means you've got authentication, you've got a user-level account, so you've got all these different things happening. This is all a variety of services that are coming back to you. Each one of these individual services can be denied on its own, or the whole service itself, the entire set of services can be denied. But under the hood, there's a lot more stuff happening than just you punching in www.amazon.com and that page coming back. To start with, we've seen security on websites get really kind of cranked up in quite the last few years. Um, Back in the early days of the internet, everybody was familiar with HTTP, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, which is the main language that the the websites kind of use for communication to the browsers. HTTPS became a lot more common because that's 
way of securing that data. That's end-to-end encryption between your browser and that service, that server that's offering back that, that data or that connection. And securing that data is really important when you get into stuff like authenticating and signing in user accounts or passing payment data or any sort of private data back and forth that you don't want to be able to be uh, like captured man in the middle and read in plain text. Now, the average person might not care if, okay, you can see my browsing history on what I'm looking at on Amazon, but they will damn well care if you have access to their password, to their credit card that they're punching in, or their PayPal information, or any of that stuff in there, because you could do a lot of damage with that. So that data really does need to be secured. So now you have not just the request for the display of that website, but you also have requests, handshakes involved in the authentication layer and in the DNS lookups and all of these different pieces. So there's a very complex set of things that are involved in providing that whole service. And uh, all those together, we can kind of jump into uh, individually, but we'll, we'll pick on a few to talk about how denial of service works with those. It's also important to recognize that when you send your request, when you hit enter, type in the URL, hit enter, you are sending a request to the address that you typed in. You're not opening up your window from your house and looking at a billboard. It's much more complicated than that. You're not peering into something that just remains static and that is accessible to you at all times. You are sending a request to a server and then that server is sending you back information. So it's nothing is static about it. So in order to send you that information, the server has to be capable of sending it. And on a basic level, just like any computer, it can do so many things at once. And not only does that server need to be available and capable of handling that response, the entire traffic path has to be clear for that communication to occur back and forth because at no point in time is your browser reaching out directly to Amazon.com. Your browser is reaching out through your ISP. It's doing DNS lookups to turn Amazon.com into the IP address where this thing lives on the internet, which will then allow it to carry upstream through the internet service providers that make up the backbone and the nodes of the internet. And all of that works as this big web of roadways basically between you and Amazon where you go onto your GPS and you say hey give me directions to get to this place I need to go the internet's effectively doing that same thing when you put in this request it's saying okay ISP how do I get from Ryan's house to Amazon.com and then you start looking at that shortest path to get there or whatever the, the shortest open path is and then you've got all of these different communication paths between you and that final server and that path needs to be run back and forth with every transaction every handshake every update to the page, every piece of that service, anytime something changes dynamically, that path needs to continue remaining open between your browser and that service for that to work. So you can interrupt and deny the service at the server. You can deny it at the host at my side, the client, you can deny it by breaking the path, by breaking the DNS infrastructure, by breaking the pipe that handles the data going back and forth. And so denial of services is kind of a real thing. There's a lot of different ways to engage that. And it means that those services are, you know, in some cases, really kind of like a house of cards sitting out there just kind of waiting to be knocked over. Well, I think so. the description you gave was pretty apt. The map instructions, the bottom line is that there's a roadway, a pathway along a network work of roads to get to where you're getting and then for the information that you're seeking to get back to you. And just like any highway, a road can handle only so many cars at once before it's the speed of the travel is going to go down or, you know, potentially as, you know, catastrophically, its ability to handle traffic at all ceases. I think that's an important comparison. So when it comes to denial of service, and I'm particularly interested in the distributed denial of service, how does it happen? How does the denial, the, the typical distributed denial of service happen? 
Sure. So in my initial talk about denial of service was something like, let's say I wanted to stop you from getting to Amazon. I can just overload Amazon servers if I have the capacity to do that. And that prevents you from getting there. That's me creating a single point to point denial of service against Amazon or against you or against your traffic path to prevent you from getting to one spot to the next. Um, and you said before that you, by essentially bombarding them re with requests and, and a request would simply be a request to do something on their website, correct? Yep. Absolutely. And because the website can only handle so many requests from all of its users at one time, obviously, the bigger the enterprise, the bigger computer setup and network setup they're going to have, the more requests they can handle. Sure. Yeah. If somebody wanted to come after my personal website, I don't really do a lot with it. It doesn't get a ton of traffic and therefore I don't have massive resources sitting behind it. So if somebody wanted to create a denial of service against my website, it would be relatively trivial to probably do so with modern tools nowadays. If somebody wanted to create a denial of service against Amazon.com, they have got a huge infrastructure. They have got a lot of tools to prevent things like denial of service. And so they are well equipped to be robust against those type of attacks because they're familiar with them and they have to deal with them on a regular basis, but it's also important to them from a financial standpoint to keep their business running to prevent those type of attacks. For me, if my personal website goes offline for a couple days or a month or something, it's probably not going to be the end of the world for me. But if Amazon.com were to go down for a month, it could be the end of Amazon uh, at that point because that it would be a large enough problem where they would lose consumers, they would start to pivot to other things, and that's just that that's how they make their money is by having that service available. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a post for this episode containing links to all of the sources, research, and information that we have cited to. You can also check out our older posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. So you just mentioned a consequence there, you know, to Amazon, their business is based on their website being up and running. So I, I kind of want to ask is what other consequences, what other reasons would hackers use a distributed denial of service attack on not even just necessarily a website, but on an enterprise? And I guess, like you said, Amazon is an e-commerce site. So you knock out their website, you've essentially knocked out their business, but obviously you would only be knocking it out for probably a short period of time because sustaining an attack on that big of an enterprise would be really difficult. So what, what reasons do hackers use DDoS for? There's a whole variety of different reasons to use something like a denial of service type attack, but a lot of the main ones, in most cases, a lot of it is uh, is retribution or being used reactively for some sort of reason. You see a lot punitive of punitive kind of yeah. You see a lot of denial of service. So Brian Krebs is a major security researcher. He's a journalist. He's amazing. He uncovers a lot of information, but because of that, his website has basically, from as I understand, is still under a denial of service attack and has been for months, maybe even well over a year at this point. Constant denial of service attacks. Because of the work that he does, he has irritated a lot of people on the dark side of the cybersecurity world. And he is amazing, and I'm a huge fan of his. But because of that, he draws that kind of level of attention. So that's why they would want to deny service to his website as much as possible, because he is effectively hampering their ability to continue the level of profitability and the level of chaos that they're looking to kind of invoke on the internet. And by doing that, he's in their way. And so this is used as a means to bully, to harass, and to hopefully, I think in the end, try to deter him from doing what he's doing. Another reason for using it can be 
covered. Flat out, if I were to want to be malicious and go at a company, the first thing I want to avoid doing is doing it from a single point that might be easily picked up by any of their detection softwares, intrusion detection, antivirus, any of their log gathering, any of their security tooling can usually pick up a single instance of something, and then it's me against a security team, one on however many. If I can start doing things like running denial of service attacks against a whole variety of their other services elsewhere around their company, except maybe the one hole that I'm trying to poke away at or get into. Now I've got their whole security team running and scrambling, trying to figure out what the hell's happening around all these different perimeter areas and all these spots where their services are at. And then, of course, their business units are probably screaming at their security team saying, hey, we need to be back online. We're losing money. Customers can't get to us. This is reputational. This is financial. That security team's now got their head so far up their backside that they don't see the fact that I'm poking away at their back door with some sort of zero-day exploit or some sort of well-known exploit that they don't have patch properly or something like that. And so you can use that as kind of a, a, a method of misdirection, the same way like a magician would keep one hand low and one hand high when they're really trying to do something. They're waving that high hand around left and right all over the place to really get your attention up there. So you're not catching the fact that that low hand is slipping a card out from a sleeve or something. You know, it's just general, general misdirection. Or when you want to make sure that the eye of Sauron doesn't see two little hobbits walking across your country, you send 10,000 soldiers to the gates and challenge them to a fight. Exactly. Exactly. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal analogy for uh, for some DDoS. <laughs> so that kind of really breaks down a couple of the main reasons why. There are other reasons, but they start to kind of fall off in, in prevalence really quick. The bullying, I think, was a point you made. It, like to demonstrate that you can, like the Russian government does it constantly against Ukraine's government uh, websites, just to demonstrate, hey, I can knock you out whenever I want to. Very infrequently are there lasting effects from denial of service and distributed denial of service. Usually the major goal there is to disrupt service long enough where you're making it painful for somebody else. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog at www.resiliencecybersecurity.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. And that's really the core behind it, because eventually at some point in time, you're going to lack the resources to continue the denial of service attack because they, it does require a lot of resources to overwhelm servers, modern servers and modern services nowadays. And eventually they will find a way to deal with that, too, because in a lot of cases, there are tools out there like Cloudflares and Akamai's and things like that that have gotten really good at identifying this type of denial of service attack. They start to see the flood of these type of anomalous requests going to servers, and then they just start dumping that traffic to make sure that that traffic never actually hits the end service, therefore not allowing the denial to occur. And so the internet's getting better at providing services to stop things like that, but that's where DDoS really kind of gets its power from then, because denial of service point to point is really easy to identify. Well, not really easy, but it's it's easier to identify and easier to mitigate. Distributed denial of service is when you start tying together multiple units, multiple vectors, multiple assets that become part of this chain of a denial of service. So now it's not just me, Ryan, sitting here with my one computer trying to create a denial of service against Amazon, which I never have a hope of ever being able to accomplish because of the resources I have versus their resources. But if I can take over a botnet of, say, I don't know, 
Eufy baby cameras that are all unsecured on the internet. <laughs> and let's say if I can harness a hundred thousand of these, and then I can go grab another hundred thousand insecure routers that are all spread out across across Asia. And let's say maybe I can grab you know some other home security cameras from another big manufacturer. I won't drop any names just to avoid being a jerk. But if I can gather up a whole botnet of all of these different devices that I now have the ability to send commands to and can control, I can now take all of these devices and get all of these cameras, all these baby monitors, all these other devices at the very same time sending the same requests to Amazon over and over and over repeatedly. So now instead of me throwing rocks one after another at the wall of Mordor, now you've got a hundred thousand rocks all hitting that wall all at the same time. Significantly higher potential for damage, but more importantly significantly higher potential for disruption which is really what the main goal is. And so whether that's to distract or whether that's to disrupt, the more resources that you put behind it, the better chance of success you have. And that's really the whole concept behind distributed denial of services, gathering up as many resources you can or finding a way to amplify the resources you have in such a way that the impact created by their traffic is amplified enough that you eventually overwhelm the provider on the other end in such a way that they're no longer able to sufficiently operate and offer up the service that they're that they're trying to. It's important to bear in mind. We tend to think of even IoT devices as, you know, it's a camera. But reality is, it is a computer. And if it sends a request to Amazon, it is the exact same type of request and type of traffic that your computer sends. And therefore, its response has to be the same. And so sending a request from a router or an enterprise printer or, you know, baby monitor camera, it all has to be treated the same way if it's not filtered out. The Internet of Things creates incredible opportunities for disruption in that way. And the Internet of Things is notoriously insecure. Most of those technologies were put together with usability and operational access as first and foremost, like the important pieces to get those out on the market. You know, hey, here's some cameras and hey, guess what? You guys are all carrying smartphones now. Here, you can watch all this stuff from your smartphone. But the average end user doesn't think, okay, cool. Well, because I've got this on my smartphone and there's a username and password, it's got to be totally secure, right? Nobody else could ever possibly see this as long as they don't have my password. And, you know, people like Yuffie prove that wrong all the time. But if that information's out there and accessible, that means those cameras are accessible to everybody else if they're accessible to you as well. And all it would take is somebody to either figure out how to gain administrative access to one of one or more of those devices or the controller of those devices if you have them all centralized in some fashion. And then, yeah, you've just added that device times however many you have into uh, a small botnet that now somebody has control over. And while that thing can still offer up the same service, it's still offering the camera feed. But now it's also got each one of your eight cameras in your house pinging Amazon a hundred times a second, amplified by X number of cameras and then uh, X number of different houses of, you know, however many uh, different camera systems people have put together. So eventually, yeah, it goes up exponentially. And again, you don't even need to necessarily hammer Amazon directly in order to deny Amazon service. There was a big attack many years ago against DynDNS, which is a, a dynamic DNS provider. That was basically done just by sending the requests to them to go after something like Amazon. So even if the requests don't get to Amazon, you can effectively shut down the domain name resolution path between a large portion of the internet and Amazon. And so even though Amazon services 
still robust and online. People can't get there because the domain name routing system that's required to make the translation between Amazon.com and the actual physical IP address of where they live isn't able to operate because that system's been overloaded, which means unless you know the direct IP address to get to Amazon.com, which I guarantee you 99 plus percent of the Amazon users have not a damn clue, you can't get to the service then because the service that's required to do that translation in the middle isn't available. And so again, that can happen all along the way. And so that whole chain is vulnerable to those type of attacks. And the more that we keep adding more insecure IoT and more insecure devices to the internet, the more people stop patching their different things, the more we start to see more and more of these botnets being tied together, pulled together. And thankfully, at the moment, most of them are still focused all on in different individual assets. But someday somebody's either going to manage to take all those botnets and pull those together, or all of the runners and operators of those botnets are all going to come together someday and say, hey, let's really go after the big one and let's go take somebody big down. And they're going to go after somebody like an Amazon or a Microsoft, God forbid, 365 or something goes down for like a week or two. Can you imagine the level of impact that denial of service of that level could really do to businesses worldwide where AWS or Azure, Microsoft, 365, Google with GCP, any of those services go down? That That's huge catastrophic level impact for that kind of denial of service. So it's important to see those systems coming in place like Cloudflare and Akamai and stuff to really prevent those. But we need to get better at securing the source of the problem, which is better regulation around securing IoT and just closing down those loopholes that people are taking advantage of to just corral those devices in the first place. And also the one big thing that companies can do in the event that you happen to be on the business end of a DDoS attack is number one, to have a proper incident response plan in place so that you can quickly respond to the existence of the threat and then two, having an adequate disaster recovery plan in place because even though it might not feel like a DDoS attack should be something on the same level as a hurricane, a flood, a fire, when you think of disaster, losing your company's entire digital presence is a disaster and you need a plan for getting it back up and running as quickly as possible and that is what an adequate disaster response plan does. In order to get more information on that, you definitely need to listen to our episode on disaster recovery. There's also additional disaster recovery plan information at resiliencecybersecurity.com. That is all the time that we have today. DDoS is a fantastically interesting topic. It can also feel kind of morbid and defeatist, but the important thing to bear in mind is that there are ways to keep yourself protected even if you can't keep yourself fully defended. Your goal is to survive these things, to get back up and running as quickly as possible and making sure that you have the right planning in place that has been tested, that has been practiced is crucial. We want to thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to new updates at fearlessparanoia.com, or you can get those by subscribing to our podcast on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or apps. For Fearless Paranoia, I am Brian. And I'm Ryan. And make sure you put strong passwords on all your IoT stuff going forward. Do it for not just yourselves, but for all the rest of us too. And uh, we certainly appreciate it. Yeah. If any of you leave the default password on anything anymore, you are to blame for everything, kind of like the British are to blame for everything. (laughs) All right. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.